Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to another episode of After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, how are you doing today? Well, Mike, I'm glad you asked because I've seen things you wouldn't believe. Oh, would, would those things include Tears in the Rain by any chance? Well, yeah, and attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion, <laughs> and sea beams glittering in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. You know, all those stuff that will be lost in time. Absolutely, right. <laughs> Very nice. Well, that's, yeah. that's, uh, that's uh, of course, your favorite monologue, as we all know by now, <laughs> which I find ironic considering you're not a huge Blade Runner fan. I know. That that's I know. Like your go-to quote. Although I do think one of my favorite monologues of all time is uh, Dr. Evil's thing about uh, from Austin Powers. Uh-huh. When he's talking about his father. Oh, yeah. yes, yes, yes. For right. some reason, when I was younger, I, used to, I memorized it all off by heart. So uh-huh. I could just, you know, throw it out there. Yep. Didn't really help getting the women, but, you know, I was happy. <laughs> hey, you know, whatever makes you happy. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's a, so how are you, how are you doing anyway? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing peachy keen, as a matter of fact. Peachy keen. A whole lot of peachy, just a touch of keen. I always like peachy keen. Always reminds me of uh, Neil Gaiman's Sandman and Death. Because that was she always used to say things with peachy keen. Oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah, boy, that takes me back. Yeah, good, good stuff. Then. Indeed. All right, so Phil, why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners? Well, we've already sort of given away what one of the movies we're talking about today is, but why don't you go ahead and tell them what we've got in store for them tonight? That's right. We will be uh, doing going after the ending for Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, and we thought we'd do that now as they are currently working on a sequel. So we'll get in first and make sure we have the right ending. After the ending. That's right. Uh, but before that, we will be doing Edgar Wright's uh, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost's Hot Fuzz, which was the second in the Cornetto trilogy. Right. And for for those of you who may not know, that consists of Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End, all films that I enjoy greatly. Yes. Yes. Although, I think The World's End is the weakest of the three. You know, I agree with you wholeheartedly on that, but I do I do enjoy it, I think, more than a lot yeah. of people did. I, I still found it to be an immensely enjoyable film, and I have a feeling that, like Hot Fuzz, it's one of those movies that's going to get better upon repeat viewings. I've only seen it the one time so far. but Very I, true, yeah. I've I, only seen it the once as well. Yeah, but I think I think it, it'll probably get better, and I, I definitely want to watch it again. That's a good call. I need to watch it again. Actually, it would be good uh, to have a night watching all three. Oh yeah, that's a great triple feature. I mean, how can you yeah. not? How can you not enjoy that? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be some laughs doing that. Yeah, I'll have sure. to do that in the future. All right, so why don't we jump right into things then, Phil? Oh, hold on, hold on. Before we do that, oh. we'll also be doing our top ten films of 1920. That's right. This should be an interesting, yes. an interesting year for us to tackle. These these early Hollywood years are always yes. uh, a little challenging, but I, I think there's some pretty good stuff in 1920 that we're going to talk about. So it should be fun. Yeah, things hotting up in 1920. That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay then, Mike. So do you want to? Talk us through Hot Fuzz. Absolutely. All right, so Hot Fuzz, directed by Edgar Wright, starring Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, Jim Broadbent, Patty Considine, Rafe Spall, Olivia Coleman, Timothy Dalton, Edward Woodward, and a small, small appearance by Stephen Merchant, but it's a scene that I happen to really love. So, yeah. uh, what and, a cast. Oh, I know. So many, so many great British actors. And actually, there's a whole bunch more that made small cameos that I haven't even mentioned, like Martin Freeman and Bill Nye, and you know, just really great, great people in it. So... Here we go. 
Nick Angel, played by Simon Pegg, is a kick-ass, no-nonsense British police officer in the Metropolitan Police Service. When he gets promoted to sergeant, he's transferred to the sleepy village of Sanford, Gloucestershire, because he always makes his colleagues look bad by comparison. Sanford is virtually devoid of any real crime, and Nick is forced to partner with Danny Butterman, played by Nick Frost, a lazy police officer and the son of the town's chief inspector, Frank Butterman, played by Jim Broadbent who somehow I left out of my cast listing a minute yeah. ago, even though he's one of the main characters. Yeah, there's so many, so many big names. <laughs> right. Understandable. All right. Uh, when a pair of local actors are killed and found beheaded in one of the actors' convertibles, the town passes it off as an accident, but Nick is unconvinced. Nick and Danny start to bond over things like action movies, but then a local millionaire's mansion is blown up. Once again, Nick is suspicious, but everyone ridicules him for his beliefs. At the town fair, the local newspaper man approaches Nick with information that he has, but is killed before he can share it with him. Nick, that's a, that's a gory moment, isn't it? That one. It really is. It really it's is. one of two kind of over the top scenes in the film that you know it was. It could have been a little, a little less so. But yeah. what are you going to do? The guy who is who's the reporter. That's uh, Adam Buxton. Who was uh, he's he's sort of known over here. He was he used to do things with uh, Joe Cornish, the oh, okay. director. Right. Think because he did the, the uh, Adam and Joe show. Oh right, um, okay. I know that I know of the show and I know who Joe Cornish yeah. is, but I'm not. I wasn't really familiar with him. It's really good. And Adam Buxton, he also has a really good uh, podcast as well, which right. is worth a listen. Oh great! I'll once you once you've listened, once you've finished listening to after the ending, of course. Of course, right, right. Yeah. Don't <laughs> don't switch away from us just yet. <laughs> So he's killed before he can share the information with Nick, and then Nick finally finally discovers a link between the murder victims. He stops by the flower shop to get a birthday present for Danny, and the proprietor is murdered right in front of him. He gives chase to the killer, but loses him. Nick accuses Simon Skinner, who's played by Timothy Dalton, the local supermarket manager, but he has an alibi. When Nick returns home, he's attacked by one of Skinner's employees. Nick realizes that the NWA, that's the Neighborhood Watch Association, <laughs> not, the, not the famous rap group, yeah. uh, is behind the murders and confronts them. Straight out of Gloucestershire, would that be the, would that be the movie? Yeah, that'd be the one. With the NWA? All right. Um, <laughs> so the, the, uh, the NWA confesses to Nick, revealing that the murder victims were all a threat to Sanford's chances of winning the Village of the Year contest. Danny's dad, Frank, reveals himself as the leader. Eventually, there's a massive gunfight, and Nick and Danny wind up arresting Danny's dad and Skinner and most of the other NWA members. As they're processing the paperwork, the last remaining NWA member, Tom Weaver, played by the late, great Edward Woodward, attacks Nick, but Danny takes the bullets for him and saves him. Weaver accidentally sets off a confiscated underwater mine that obviously isn't <laughs> underwater anymore uh, and blows up the police station, uh, although all the police luckily uh, are, are survive. No one is killed. One year later, Nick and Danny are back in action in Sanford, kicking butt and taking names. And that's where we leave off. That's the end of the film. Very, very well done. And uh, we were, we've were we talked about this film a little bit, uh, Phil. And, you know, I think last week we were saying that, um, you know, this is, to me, it's it's inferior to Shaun of the Dead. You said that you, you like it better than Shaun of the Dead now. Yeah, yeah. And um, I watched it again for the purposes of this episode, and I have to say I enjoyed it about ten times more than the first time I, I watched it. It's definitely yeah. one of those movies that um, I've sort of reassessed, and I, I I do still like Shaun of the Dead better, but I will say that I really really enjoyed watching this movie again. It's a lot yeah, of fun. I, I find every time I watch Hot Fuzz, it just I, I enjoy it more and more. 
I don't, I don't know what it is. I'm not sure whether you miss things when the first time you watch it or you just get into it more, but it just seems to, it just seems to work better every time I say it. Right, right. No arguments. Like I said, I definitely mm-hmm. I definitely got a lot more out of it this time than I did the first time I watched it. Yup. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Phil, so why don't you kick things off? Take us through your day after. Okay, well, it's the day after, but as we already know, it's a year later by the end of the film. So the day after the year... So a year and a day after. Right, right. Could I explain that in any more convoluted way? <laughs> Probably. I think, yeah. we're, I think we're still following you, but, but yeah. you know. So we're 360-odd days later. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, Angel and Danny have settled into the, their new roles, the, but the events of the previous year are still weigh heavy on them. The San, Sanford Police Force is now working very well indeed, and Nick Angel has been asked to go to other villages and towns around to talk about how they can improve their police forces. Danny has also started uh, watching a lot of horror movies after getting a bit sick of the action films and that's my day after what about you all right well first i just want to say though blasphemy you can never get sick of watching action films but maybe well, maybe that's just yeah me. yeah <laughs> i think after what they've gone through right right no no i get that it probably pales in comparison to real life you know yeah yeah all right so for my day after nick and danny continue to apprehend lawbreakers in sanford including jaywalkers drunkards graffiti artists and this strange guy who's loitering around town with a sign saying that the zombie apocalypse is coming <laughs> Later that year, Sanford once again wins the Village of the Year Award, proving that it can be done without killing off its citizens. Nick and Danny (laughs) earn citations from police headquarters, and the brass try again to get Nick to come back to London, but he once again refuses. However, when an opportunity arises to head to America and join with some American police officers in a goodwill kind of PR tour, the police brass assign Nick and Danny to head across the pond and represent England. That's where we'll leave oh, it. Oh, very nice. I like that idea. Yeah. So there you go. That's I didn't, th- I didn't think of going into Continental. <laughs> well, there's a reason why they had to come to the U.S., which will be revealed <laughs> in my next segment. But for now, why don't you share your immediate aftermath? Okay. At first, Nick Angel's outreach program with the other local police force is going very well. But then he begins to notice a change. Some meetings are cancelled, or the officers he speaks to seem distracted or don't care. And there's been an increase in missing people and pets. He also receives word from the top brass that an independent security company called Innsmouth Security will be helping uh, his, the local Sanford police force as well as some of the others. Not happy with this and the fact that the Innsmouth team all seem a bit odd, it all seems a bit fishy to him, Angel begins to investigate further. Hmm. It's my immediate aftermath. You know what's funny, Phil? As I think almost every episode you end one of your segments and I always follow it up with, hmm, hmm. because I'm very intrigued <laughs> to see where you're going with that. Hmm. I like it, though. I like it. All right. Very cool. Okay, let's uh, let's head back to the U.S. All right. Well, we're we're literally and with your immediate <laughs> aftermath. Right. We are we are going in very different directions with our endings, which is always yeah. which is always nice. So here we go. Mm-hmm. Arriving in America, Nick and Danny meet up with their American counterparts, Frank Punch Poncherello and John Baker, also known as Punch oh, and John. As, lovely. Thank you. <laughs> as part of the California Highway Patrol, also known as the Chips, Ponch and John ride their police motorcycles for justice. They take Nick and Danny for a tour of the police station and then lend them a police car to go out on patrol with them. Nick and Danny think that police motorcycles seem silly, while Ponch and John think that Nick and Danny seem pasty and they talk funny. <laughs> 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 with Punch and John, and that's not a commentary on British people. That's just a oh, commentary no, on on Nick and Danny because they both. Oh, I they totally both understand. Are. You. Okay. Not that I'm a stranger to offending the British, as we know from previous episode, <laughs> but in this case, I'm not trying to. So, okay, crack on, Young. <laughs> All right, thank you. 
<laughs> With Punch and John on motorcycles and Nick and Danny in a patrol car, they hit the highways. When they come across a drug deal gone bad that's escalated into a firefight, Nick and Danny jump out of the car and get involved, taking out 18 gang members in under two minutes. John and Ponch are amazed, but when one of the drug lords escapes on his own motorcycle, John and Ponch lead the chase, with Nick and Danny right behind. When Nick and Danny are knocked out of the chase because their car won't fit down an alleyway, Ponch and John have to chase the drug lord down on their own, and they eventually apprehend him. All four officers meet back up and realize that they each have profound respect for the other's particular skills. And that's where we'll leave it for now. Wow, okay, that's that's all in the immediate aftermath. That's pretty good. Yeah, well, you know, (laughs) there's a lot to fit in. All right, Phil, so why don't you bring it home and share your long term with us? Okay, Nick Angel's investigation doesn't show anything uh, with regards to Innsmouth security, and it, things quieten down. Months pass, and Angel and Danny notice more and more people acting oddly. Then, during a routine traffic stop, Danny finds a strange statue on the back seat, along with a leaflet for a gathering in a week's time. The leaflet is titled, How the Old Ones Can Help You. At the meeting, the head of the order, Charles Theodore Lewis, will arrive. Later that night, while eating a curry and watching Reanimator with Nick Angel, Danny talks about the traffic stop and leaflet. Just as he's about to mention the name, of the leader, he takes a swig of beer, which goes down the wrong way. Coughing the name comes out as <laughs> They both stop and realise what is coming their way. <laughs> Bloody cults, says Angel, as they head off to pick up the guns and the rest of the team. Very nice. <laughs> that's awesome. And that's, that's how I, I'm just ending it because they're going to go off and back into action. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, I love it. I love the idea of Nick uh, and Danny going off and fighting, you know, a giant squid monster and a bunch yeah. of cultists. You know what I mean? I, I, like, I think that'll be good. But that's, that's for everyone's imagination just to see how that goes down. Right, right. That's more like uh, HP fuzz or, or Lovecraft. HP fuzz. fuzz. Yeah, yeah, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very nice. Very nice. Thank you, Thank you very much. And so let's... Uh, bri- Bring it home in an American style All right. So after finishing their American promotional tour, Nick and Danny return to the U.K. They depart as good friends with Ponch and John, and the four of them participate in an exchange program every year, with Ponch and John coming to the U.K. every other year, and then Nick and Danny going to the U.S. on opposite years. Nick and Danny eventually go back to London part-time to help clean it up. Several years later, with London as crime-free as it's ever been, Nick and Danny are asked to launch the World Police Convention, where they bring in speakers from around the world to share best practices. The first year, the convention is a huge success, with guest speakers such as David Starsky and Ken Hutch Hutchinson, <laughs> Ray Tango and Gabe Cash, oh, lovely. Roger Murtaugh and Martin Riggs, Sergeant Joe Friday and Officer Smith, Sheriff oh, Andy Taylor and Barney Fife, and Scott Turner and his dog Hooch. The event is a big success, and it becomes an annual event, leading to decreased crime around the world. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Thank you. And that's, who's, that's the, the, uh, who's the sheriff on the... That would be from the Andy Griffith show, with Barney, Barney ah. Fife was Don Knotts' character. Oh, okay. That, I don't think that was ever really... I know the show, but right. I don't, don't think I've ever seen it. Yeah, it was kind of a... I mean, it was obviously a very... It's, you know, I can see why it wouldn't necessarily play over there. It was about, like, a you know, Mayberry, the small town, you yeah. know, 50s kind of sheriff... And his bumbling deputy, but I don't know. I just feel like throwing them in. Oh, I, nice! I, yeah, perfect, perfect. Because it's. I uh, like the idea of Don Knotts at a police convention. You know? <laughs> cool, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, the way you apprehend criminals, you see. <laughs> I know, right? Back to the impressions. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 I wasn't sure what that was a Bill Cosby one. <laughs> no, that's a, that's pop. a whole different one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you take the pudding pop. No, I can't. I can't do a good Bill Cosby. No, we can't do Bill Cosby anymore. No, no, yeah, I really can't. Uh, so anyway so there you go so that is uh hot fuzz 
Phil, why don't you share with us what uh, trivia you've come up with for it? Okay, the first draft of the script gave Nick Angel a love interest called Victoria. She was cut from further drafts, and a lot of her dialogue was given to Danny, and it was often unchanged. Oh. So I quite like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. We had we mentioned lots of famous faces in there. There were some other cameos, though. You didn't really see the face. Uh-huh. Uh, P- Peter Jackson, the director, uh-huh. he played Santa. That stabs Nick in the opening scene. Oh, okay, cool. And Kate Blanchett is Nick's ex, who is That's she's the one. Who it with, is. Yeah, she's wearing the mask at the crime scene when she breaks up with him. You know, I was watching it and I totally recognized the voice, and I was like, I know that's somebody famous, but she's yeah. wearing a mask and everything, and I couldn't, and I forgot to look in the credits. So that's that's who it is. All right. Well, I love the fact as well that they are proper cameos, and there's no because the face aren't involved at all. It's just right. like, nice way of doing it. Right. Right. And Nick's service number is seven seven seven, which is sometimes referred to as the mark of God. Interesting. Yeah, and Bill Bailey's character, he's the one who's playing the twins. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a good comedian everything. But there's the, the two characters he plays are reading books, one by Ian Banks and the other by Ian M. Banks, which is the same author, but one's more sci-fi and one's more just uh, normal fiction. Right, right. I quite like that little touch for the two characters. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, Bill Nighy filmed his scenes in a day, and Timothy Dalton said it was the most fun he's ever had on a film. I can imagine. He ha- he seemed like he was having a really good time Oh, yeah, in he that seemed role. to love it. Yeah. And there's another bit I read where there's a scene where he's having... Uh, in his office with Simon Pegg, uh-huh. they filmed uh, Timothy Dalton's scene first of all on the one day, so it was all from it. You know, the camera pointing at him while Simon Pegg was running his lines, uh-huh. and then the next day, Simon Pegg came in expecting to just, you know, have somebody else in the crew reading the lines to him. But Timothy Dalton turned up before him and sat on the chair and did all the lines, you know, back and forth with him because he said he wanted to do it properly. Right. So a proper professional there. Absolutely. Yeah. I would expect nothing less from Timothy Dalton. Yes, because he's. Oh, and it's, it's always good watching uh, Flash Gordon as well when he's in that. I love his, his <laughs> right. great Prince Baron. Yep, yep, for sure. Yeah. Okay, well, that wraps up our ending for Hot Fuzz. I think it's time to move on then to one of the most beloved and critically acclaimed science fiction films of all time, that being Mac and Me. Mac and me. You're going to say Mac and me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so we, <laughs> we can roll the, the Paul Rudd clip. Have you seen that? Do, oh, yeah. Do you know about yeah, Paul yeah, Rudd yeah. on, uh, is it Jimmy Fallon, right? Where every time, yeah, I think it is, yeah. Every time he goes on to play a clip from his movies, <laughs> they always play a clip from Mac and me. That's oh, one of my favorite yeah. late night bits. It's it's so yeah. funny. Uh, no, anyway, instead of, we're not actually talking about Mac and me. We are talking oh, about. Oh, hold on. Paul yes. Rudd, though, you mentioned that, uh, The Fundamentals of Caring on Netflix. If you haven't watched it, watch it. It's a brilliant film. Okay. I'll check it out. Really recommend that one. All right, great. So uh, anyway, we're not talking about Mac and Me tonight. We are talking about Blade Runner. That's right. Ridley Scott's 1982 film starring Harrison Ford, who's been in some sci-fi films and some archaeologist films. Right. Yeah, Blade Runner, beautiful-looking film. But but as I've said before, it all, it seems to lessen an impact for me the more times I would see it. Sure, I can understand that. Mm. I personally just can't wait to hear how you're going to synopsize this in less than 27 minutes. So let's uh, right. let's see what you got. Okay, some uh, artificial humans come to Earth, and a cop's got to chase them down. <laughs> that kind of kind of sums it up, really. I mean, you know, you could probably get away with that. Yeah, or does he? Okay. Right, right. So, okay, so it's November 2019. God, only three years away. <laughs> right, it's a very far cry from what yeah. the world really looks like. Yeah, I think we've just passed. It was Roy Batty's inception date this year or last year? I think it was last year. Yeah, last year. Uh, okay, so it's Los Angeles, November 2019. Ex-cop Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, is picked up by Officer Gaff, played by the brilliant Edward James Olmos, uh, and he takes him for a meeting with Bryant, played by the also brilliant M. Emmett Walsh. Bryant used to be uh, Rick's old police chief. He, t- he tells him that four replicants have come to Earth illegally. They are Nexus 6 models 
which uh, are pretty much more human than human, and they have a four-year lifespan. Uh, they think they've come to Earth to get more life. Uh, Deckard watches a video of Leon, played by Brian James, taking the Voidkamp test, and it's being done by a Blade Runner called Holden. Leon ends up shooting Holden after he's asked a few questions about a turtle, and that's when the video ends. So Deckard has to retire Leon, Roy Batty, played by Rockahauer, Zora, played by Joanna Cassidy, and Pris, played by Daryl Hannah. Deckard goes to the Tyrell Corporation HQ to talk to Tyrell and to make sure that the Voidkampf test works on Nexus 6 replicants. While he's there, he meets Rachel, who's Tyrell's assistant. She's played by Sean Young. And it turns out she's a new replicant who thinks she's human. Meanwhile, Pris approaches J.F. Sebastian, played by William Sanderson. He's a genetic engineer who works closely with Tyrell. Meanwhile, things have happened. Deckard's had a dream of uh, unicorns. And he also finds a photo at Leon's place and a snake scale in the bathtub, which puts him on the trail of Zora. Turns out she's working in a strip club and dancing with a snake. Uh, Deckard ends up chasing her down and kills her in the street. After that, he then gets told by Bryant that Rachel has also disappeared and that she now needs to be retired along with the others. Deckard is attacked by Leon, but Rachel turns up and shoots Leon and saves Deckard. They go back to Deckard's apartment and it all gets a little bit weird and they end up kissing. And then we head back to Sebastian who takes Rory Batty to see Tyrell. We ask Tyrell for more life, but Tyrell says it is impossible. They have a bit of a philosophical conversation. Roy kisses and then kills Tyrell by pushing his eyes in. It's a bit nasty, but, you know, that's what happens. And we also think he kills Sebastian because you only see Roy coming down in the elevator. Uh, Deckard goes to Sebastian's apartment where he's attacked by Pris, but he manages to kill her. He's then chased by Roy up onto the roof. Deckard tries to jump across to another roof, but ends up grabbing onto it and begins to slip. Ray pulls Deckard up, saving him. And Ray talks about tears in the rain or some such nonsense and dies in front of him. Gaff then appears and shouts, It's too bad she won't live, but then again, who does? In a bit of a panic, Deckard goes back to his apartment to get Rachel. She's still there fast asleep and the two of them head off. But uh, Deckard also finds a small origami unicorn, uh, it's, which has been left by Gaff. And they head off into the wilderness. The end. All right. That was, uh, that was some kind of something. Thank you. It's a lot to get through, huh? I know, and also the fact is, there's like different versions. So, right, right, I know. That you know makes so a there's probably tricky. some bits which weren't in, you know, probably haven't mentioned, but I think I've got the main points. Right, I think so. I think you got yes. it covered nicely. Okay, then, Mike, do you want to give us your day after? Sure thing. All right, so Rick and Rachel open up a bakery called Rick's Decadent Cupcakes. <laughs> no, not really. I'm sorry. I just, I really just wanted to use that pun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, could you um, imagine? Yeah, right. It's I, imagine I, I played one or two opens, <laughs> right? And they're in a cupcake shop, yeah. and Harrison Ford's wearing like a pink apron, you know, <laughs> and he's baking cupcakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not that's not really the direction that I went in, but uh, all right. So anyway, so Rick and Rachel leave Los Angeles and head to New York hoping to get lost in the chaos of the big city. However, a corporate mid-level manager named Simon Burmaster at the Tyrell Corporation discovers Rachel's existence while going through the deceased Tyrell's records and decides that the best way to get ahead is to track her down and present her to the higher-ups as an example of what replicant technology can be. Mm. So he illegally requisitions a replicant from outer space mining duty and brings him to Earth to hunt Rachel down. And that's where we'll leave things for now. Oh, mm. who's the replicant? Well, mm. maybe we'll find out, and maybe we won't. Okay. <laughs> All right, how about your day after? Okay. okay, mine, I've got Deckard and Rachel head off into the country. Rick is confused with the whole unicorn thing and begins to question his own memories. He's also worried about Rachel, as they're not sure how long she has to live. If he is a replicant, he can't understand why he would be made to hunt down his own kind. 
and that's uh, that's my day after. It's a All short right. one, but that's, that's okay. where we are. I sense it's going in big places, so. Maybe. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. All right. So what have we got for your immediate aftermath? All right. So in New York, Rick and Rachel open an interior decorator business called Rick's Decadent Designs. <laughs> no, not really. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just, keep, keep going back to that. I just... I know, I know. I'm it's terrible. the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> That's right. I never met a pun I didn't like. <laughs> anyway, so Rick sets up as a private investigator, and Rachel takes a job as a waitress. They enter into an uneasy sort of relationship. Deckard knows she's a replicant and that he doesn't really want to get into a relationship with a non-human, but he can't deny that he has feelings for her. One night, while they're in their apartment, the replicant hunter breaks in and tries to kill Rachel. Rick disarms him and manages to incapacitate him. Once they have him restrained, they reveal to the hunter that Rachel is a replicant too. Realizing that he's been unknowingly duped into hunting down one of his own kind, the hunter agrees to help Rick and Rachel. They fake Rachel's death, and they do so by using an explosion that would completely decimate her body, thus denying Burmaster the opportunity to use her to further himself in the Tyrell Corporation. Then, Rick and Rachel relocate again, this time to Chicago, where Rick once again becomes a private detective. Oh, okay. So, I like it. Thank you. That's the immediate aftermath for now. What do you have for yours? Okay. I've got the the couple travel from town to town, and Rick manages to get new IDs for them along the way, and they slowly grow closer over time. They end up in a small town in Montana, where they set up home. Both both feel that uh, Rachel only has a few years left but they just don't know at all either way. All they know is that Tyrell said she was a new kind of replicant. Deckard ends up working as a carpenter, something he remembers doing, but he constantly questions those memories. <laughs> I, like, I like that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Rachel works, uh, ends up getting a job for the local newspaper, and one evening, Rick returns home after a busy day doing carpentry stuff to find Rachel happy yet scared. It turns out she's pregnant. Wow, that's interesting. And that's the end of my immediate aftermath. Okay, that's quite the ending. Mm. A bit of a cliffhanger there. I like that. Thank you. Uh, okay, then what have we got for your long term? What's going on with with uh, after the explosion and the faking of the death and everything? All right. Well, the hunter replicant reports back to Simon Burmaster and shows him video footage of Rachel's supposed death. Burmaster loses his temper and kills the replicant. As he finds himself covered in the replicant's blood and sees his artificial insides, he gets struck with an idea. He leaves the Tyrell Corporation and launches his own company, naming it after himself. Simon Burmaster's new company is called Cyberdyne. Meanwhile, (laughs) Meanwhile, Rick and Rachel go on living their lives undisturbed in Chicago. Thanks to Rachel's new design, she doesn't have the four-year lifespan of a typical replicant, but since she doesn't age, they have to move every ten years or so. As disturbing reports of more and more technology becoming self-aware start to surface, Rick and Rachel head toward the more sparsely populated Midwest, heading out into the desert to live out the remaining years together, away from the world. When the nuclear holocaust, or judgment day as it's called, arrives, Rick and Rachel meet their end, hand in hand, having lived full, long lives together. Oh, dark yet also <laughs> nice. See that? You're right. A little yeah. dark, but a little little romance yeah. worked in. And yeah. yes, I, I do know I completely played with the timeline of, uh, you know, Terminator 2 and Cyberdyne well, and all that. But... I think you're quite safe with that because they played with the timeline plenty, you know, in the, in the TV well, by, shows. Yeah, the, the right, film, so. right. By now, especially after the last Terminator movie, the timeline is so in flux. It doesn't really yeah. matter when it it's can set, be, you can so. You can fit it in anywhere. Right, exactly. So <laughs> I just, you know, I don't want that one person out there going, well, Cyberdyne was launched in 1997, you know, just fire off an email and tell us that we were, you know, that I was wrong. So Yeah. All right, so great. So, Phil, why don't you then uh, wrap it up and give us your long term? I'm very interested to see what we're going to see, what's going to happen with the pregnant Rachel. 
Okay, well, they end up having a son who they call Carl. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> having a child was something they thought impossible for replicants, but obviously Rachel, Rachel is different, and possibly Rick's different as well, but he's never quite sure whether he's a replicant or not. Years pass, pass and Rachel doesn't die, and neither does Rick. They both age normally and watch their son grow. So what they have before them is either the first human replicant hybrid child or the first child from a couple of replicants. Deckard has found a life he never thought possible. Years pass, and sadly Rachel ends up getting killed in a car accident. These things happen, and time moves on. Carl, now in his 20s and looking a lot like a young Ryan Gosling, tells <laughs> Rick Deckard of a strange encounter he had. He'd been in a local bar when a man with a pockmarked face and a cane had approached him that night, saying get a message for his father. Carl then passes Deckard an origami unicorn. Mm. Deckard, knowing this day was, was going to come, passes new ID documents to Carl and tells him to get out of there. He has to go and get to safety wherever he can. After a tearful farewell, Rick prepares for what is coming. He checks his gun one last time as the spinners begin to land outside. It seems fitting when the rain begins to fall. Nice. Carl ends up making it off planet and the seeds are sown for a bloody civil war. Ooh, wow. I like that. You went big. I like that. Yes, thank you. Very cool. Okay, so uh, tell us, Phil, I'm, there's got to be loads of trivia for Blade Runner. I'm sure you have selected some, some fun nuggets of info for us. Yes. Some data bites, if you will, if I'm keeping with the sci-fi theme. Okay, yes. Uh, the scene when Daryl Hannah is with uh, in the streets with J.F. Sebastian, she runs away scared, um, runs and s- smashes a, a car window. Uh, she wasn't meant to smash the car window. It was a real window. She ended up chipping her elbow uh, during that scene in eight places. Ouch. So it was a bit of a nasty accident, but it looked very good on film. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Joanna Cassidy did the dance with a snake, and it turns out that was her very own pet snake. So she has no problem at all with, with dancing with snakes or being pretty much naked for <laughs> lots of the scenes. <laughs> right. Uh, the, the famous aerial shot where you see one of the spinners fly past the billboard with the uh, the Asian woman mm-hmm. you know, taking a pillow, whatever it is. Uh, one of the buildings in the background is actually a kitchen sink. Oh, okay. Which I so need they, to go. They literally threw in everything and yes. the kitchen sink. Yes, they did. All right. uh, and surprisingly, there are only ninety special effects shots in the entire film. Wow! And that's in every version. That's impressive. Which I really like. That uh, Debbie Harry was apparently the original choice to play Pris. Hmm. Interesting. Which I think I could have still seen that working. Sure. Uh, sure. And other actors considered for the role are Deckard. Uh, I think Dustin Hoffman was the original choice. But other actors are considered also Tommy Lee Jones, Gene Hackman, Sean Connery, Peter Falk, Martin Sheen, Bert Reynolds, Scott Glenn, and Clint Eastwood. Wow, that's quite a varied uh, collection mm-hmm. of actors there. I think all of them would have made a, a, a different film. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And some of them would have been brilliant, and some of them maybe not so much. Less but, so. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I quite I quite think, out of those, I think Scott Glenn is the one I, I think. Yeah, I, I was thinking that too, actually. One. He's an excellent yeah. choice. He definitely, I think, yeah. kind of would fit that very similar type of approach that Harrison Ford had. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and also, uh, I think Harrison Ford didn't want to wear a hat in the film, so he went and got that, a haircut, oh. some, uh, which Ridley Scott didn't quite like, but he stuck with it anyway, and it looked it was quite different. It looked a bit different at the time, didn't it? So, sure, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, it probably was a good idea anyway, just to help set him apart from, you know, Indiana Jones and, and, and yeah, yeah. Han Solo. You know, the, that yeah. buzz cut was so distinct looking, comparatively speaking. Mm-hmm. But that was uh, that was Blade Runner. All right, so there you go. Those are our endings for Blade Runner and Hot Fuzz. If you have your own endings you would like to share, or you just have some thoughts on ours you'd like to share, you can reach out to us, and and we'll be happy to read those on the air. Uh, we'll tell you how to do that in just a little bit. I'll al- I'll also just say though, it's going to be interesting now when Blade Runner Two does come out. I'll be coming back to listen to this episode just to see whether we got anything right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. 
the Terminator stuff isn't going to tie in. But I, I know, I but the, the early think... on stuff in your story. Right, right. No, I agreed. And I do think there's a really good chance that they are going to start the new movie with them having a, a cupcake bakery. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, we'll That's see. That's a big thing. Yeah, yes. yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm waiting to see Harrison Ford in that pink apron. That's going to be brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so let's move on then to our Mighty Morphin mini feature for the week. And this week we have a new one. Phil, would you like to tell people what we're doing? Okay. This this week we are doing In Defense Of. That's where we take films which are generally not well thought of, but we quite like them. And we're going to say why we like them. Yeah. Or you know, why they work, why they don't. You know, we all have films like that, so... You might agree with us, you might disagree with us, but you, you know the general thing we're going for. Right. I think people probably generally disagree with my pick, but um, it's, this is sort of our chance to make a case for why a movie that is sort of universally derided might actually be better than people think. All right, Phil, so why don't you go ahead and start things off then? Okay, well, as I felt so miserably doing Jaws last, in our last bonus episode, I thought I'd stick with the shark theme, and I'm going to go with 1999's Deep Blue Sea, directed by Reddy Harlan. Good choice. Yes, Although yes. a film I love greatly, I, so <laughs> yeah, that's, that's well. But uh, I know it's many people think it's a load of tosh, uh, but I think it's I love it to bits. Absolutely, well, I love it. maybe not love it to bits, but it's whenever it's on TV, I can't help but watch it. Oh yeah, yeah. It's I know it's silly. It's got some. It's got some bad acting in places. Some some of the effects are a little bit dodgy, but it's uh, it's got Thomas Jane in a way. It's like LL Cool J's. Pretty good, even with that damn parrot. <laughs> uh, yep. Michael Rappaport's cool. Stellan Skarsgård, he's just... I, I just love the way he dies, to be oh, honest. Oh, that's such a great scene <laughs> yeah, in the no. film when, when Just when you think it can't get any worse, and then it gets worse. Yeah, I mean, that's really... that. That's such a great scene. I I, I do. I, I agree with you, Phil. I love that movie, so... Yeah, and uh, then I've got Samuel L. Jackson as well, yep. who uh, if they set up to be like the, the hero of the film, and then what happens to him is just another brilliant piece of... I won't say a brilliant piece of filmmaking, but a brilliant decision to do with the story. Exactly, exactly. I but agree. yeah, it's we've got we've got teams working on this aquatic uh, remote facility, trying to find a cure for Alzheimer's disease. So they decide to inject stuff into these mako sharks, which makes them bigger and makes them smarter. And then the surprise when things go wrong. <laughs> right, shocking. Yeah. yeah, and then everything goes wrong on the same day when Samuel L. Jackson's there visiting to see what's going on. And right. it's just it's just and, cool. And, and I believe I think, there's a hurricane or a big yeah, tropical yeah. storm too. Yeah. yeah. It's basically when they're writing a the script, they're going, okay, we've got giant sharks, which are super intelligent, but what can we do to make it, you know, bigger? Right, right, right. Exactly. That's part of uh, the fun. That's why I love that movie yeah, so much. Yeah. It's because it is, it's stupid. And let's, let's see what's it got on the air. Uh... Oh yeah. Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes. It's currently got a 56% rating. So it's sort of, yeah, it's kind of the middle, the middle distance, but uh, I do know, I've spoken to people who absolutely hate it and think it's an absolute tosh, but it's probably not the worst film I could have picked, but it was just the one that struck, to, uh, popped into my head when... I was trying to come up with something. Sure, it sure. To be, yeah. yeah, but it's uh, it's one of those guilty pleasures. And as I say, whenever it's on TV, it's I can't help but watch it to the end. Oh, I'm I'm right there with you. Yeah. Right there with you. Yeah. So there's mine. It's not the most controversial one, but uh, there you go. That's all right. I'm t- I'll take care of that for us. Okay. What have you got then? What's yours? <laughs> all right. Well, we're going to keep with the theme then, uh, because what I am going to defend is Jaws: The Revenge. Which is the fourth <laughs> Jaws movie, which sees the... Uh, I'm great... out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's the fourth one that sees the uh, Great White Shark tracking uh, Michael Brody down to the Bahamas. And uh, his mom, played by Lorraine Gary, goes down there. And Michael Caine shows up for a paycheck. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's there's a Mark, Mark Kermode, who's my favorite film critic, makes a joke about how, you know, Michael Caine opened up the script for Jaws The Revenge and saw the first scene said, you know... 
scene opens in the Bahamas and he said, okay, uh, you know, because <laughs> yeah. he wanted a vacation. And, and here's, so here's why I'm defending this film. So Jaws 4 has sort of become shorthand for, you know, crappy sequels and movies that actors like Michael Caine take just for a paycheck, right? It's yeah. sort of become, you know, synonymous with that. But I recently watched Jaws 3 and 4 back-to-back because Universal just released them on Blu-ray for the first time. So being the huge Jaws fan that I am, I love the whole franchise, good and bad. So I I sat down, I watched 3 and 4 back-to-back. And I maintain that Jaws 4 is about 10 times better than Jaws 3. So here's the thing. It's not that Jaws 4 is a great film, but after watching Jaws 3, which is actually quite dreadful, uh, Jaws 4 looks like a masterpiece by comparison. Okay, when you you talk about it like that, I can see where you're coming from. Now, I have a soft spot for Jaws 3 because it was filmed in SeaWorld, Orlando, which I used to live across the street from. And for years after the movie came out, there was all sorts of like props and sort of location things and and placards and stuff talking about the filming of the movie. So that was a big deal for me as a kid. And, And so I do have a soft spot for it and watching it and seeing all the SeaWorld locations and everything it's it's still fun for me to watch but I'm pretty sure they didn't even bother with a mechanical shark in Jaws 3 I think they just got a rubber shark and they just shook it around a few times they just let it sit in that bloody pipe for ages it just seems that's my memory of it is you go there's a shark here and you go oh my god and then you go it's still in the pipe can't get out and then it seems to be there for the majority of the film that's not entirely inaccurate no Uh, (laughs) and it's you know I mean it really is just like a giant rubber shark and it never moves and just sort of floats around a bunch and it's pretty much an awful movie I mean I love it as far as a nostalgia thing but it's, it's pretty terrible and so then Jaws 4 comes out, and so you get Lorraine Gary back in, which gives it a nice tie back to the first movie, you know, makes mm-hmm. it feel a lot more like a real Jaws film. Um, and the shark in this one is actually pretty impressive. It's actually a much better shark uh, than, than I think, you know, at least, well, the, certainly the third one, but it's probably the, maybe the best shark since the first film. Like, they actually got the shark to, to do stuff and to move and to really kind of look scary. And, yeah, you know, there's some neat moments where, like, I know people have a problem because, like, like Lorraine Gary's Ellen Brody's you know is sort of like she's not really psychic but she sort of senses when her son is in danger yeah there's that there's that weird thing isn't it yeah like but like you know there's also do make of... a point that she's got some kind of connection with the shark doesn't she yeah kind of I mean it's 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 hinted at more than anything else really you know but um you know it's one of those things where it's like I think it's meant to be more sort of symbolic rather it's not like she has like an actual psychic connection with the shark i think it's more meant to be that sort of you know a mom knows when her kid is in danger you know but i really i like the sort of her you know getting it making it personal and going after the shark on her own and um you know i watched it and i thought you know what this isn't really a terrible movie it's kind of as far as shark movies go there's definitely worse ones and jaws 3 is definitely a worse one so i'm just saying that i think we should change the conversation to when we talk about terrible movies uh, about about sequels that are terrible. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jaws 3 is a much more worthy sequel, or a much more uh, worthy contender for terrible sequel than Jaws 4 is. No, I could go along with that. I see where you're coming from. Also, the Jaws of Revenge does have The Last Starfighter in, so... Yeah, and he's actually quite good, well. and he's a, he's a, you know, he's a likable lead, Lance mm-hmm. Guest. And so, you know, you've got him, you've got Lorraine Gary, you've got um, Michael Caine, you've got Mario Van Peebles, you know, some likable members to the cast. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just, I, like I said, I just, I watched it again, I didn't think it was that bad, so... Well, one other theory, though, if you go with this, that she has got psychic connection to the shark, that you could say that the shark is the reincarnation of Martin Brody, who's just trying to get his family back. <laughs> you you could say that, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, indeed you could. But we won't. <laughs> but we won't, right. <laughs> so, 
Anyway, so those are our picks for tonight. It's a little shark-themed episode, apparently, uh, for In Defense Of. If you have a movie that people don't like that you love, please share it with us online. We'd be happy to read that out online. And uh, in a future episode, I'm sure we'll share some more movies that we have soft spots for that Yeah, we'll we'll definitely come back to this one. Yeah, yeah. There's so (laughs) so many more movies to get into, I'm sure. Yeah. All right, so that wraps up our mini feature. Why don't we head back in time for our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes. Tonight, as we mentioned earlier, we're going back to 1920. Phil, why don't you take us back in your time machine and tell us what the world was like some 95 or so years ago. Yeah, well, we had flappers are flapping. (laughs) and uh, The prime minister in the UK was David Lloyd George. While over in the U.S., the president was Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Babe Ruth was traded by the Red Sox for $125,000, which at the time was the largest sum ever paid. And it only resulted in 85 years of bad luck for the Red Sox. Uh, The New York Times ridiculed U.S. rocket scientist Robert H. Goddard, basically saying there's no way we'll ever get to the moon. Uh, They ended up apologizing on the 17th of July, 1969, after the moon landing. Right. Nice, Nice to know they did, you know, go back on it. Yeah, yeah. Anna Anderson tried to kill herself in Berlin. She was taken to a mental hospital where she claimed she was the Grand Duchess Anastasia Anastasia of Russia. Mm. Uh, there was the Irish War of Independence. Uh, the 19th Amendment of the US Constitution was passed, giving women suffrage. And in, over in the UK, the Flying Squad was formed in the London Metropolitan Police. That means they're basically, you know, using cars, driving around. Uh, so why chap- they couldn't call it the Driving Squad? I know, I know. It is funny, isn't it? There was... Uh, <laughs> Just yeah. saying that's, that's a little yeah. confusing. I've got a great idea of what we've got to call it, yeah. <laughs> right, right. The boat squad. The boat squad's cheaper. Call it the fire squad. <laughs> exactly. Right, I'm glad I'm not the only one who sees the ridiculousness. Oh, no, no, Terry, we didn't think it through. <laughs> okay. And uh, a little chap by the name of Hitler made his first political speech in Austria. And, you know, somebody should have gone, no, you rubbish. Might mean the best thing for him to do. Yeah. Uh, and the unknown warrior was buried in Westminster Abbey. Mm. And also we had some famous births. Uh, Isaac Asimov, Federico Fellini, DeForest Kelly, James Doohan, so a couple of Star Trek people. Yep. Tony Randall, Tashira Mifuni, Ravi Shankar, Peggy Lee, Ray Harryhausen, Yul Brynner, Shelley Winters, Ray Bradbury, Mickey Rooney, Maureen O'Hara, Charlie Parker, Walter Matthau, and Montgomery Clift. Very nice. Yes, and that was 1920. All right, so Phil, why don't you start things off then? Give us your number 10 pick for the year. Okay, well, as we've done on some other early years, I haven't seen a full 10 films from 1920, so I'm going to go... I've seen two two films from the list, or there might have been a couple more, but I couldn't remember for definite, but so my... my first eight are going to be films that I really like the sound of and would like to see. Right. I forgot to mention that. Yes, my list is the yeah. same. I've seen one film from 1920, uh, but so my first nine will will be the same films I, I want to see. And then my number one is a favorite of mine. So I think it would have been number one either way. But we'll get to that. So, all right. So what's your number 10 film from 1920 you'd like to see? Yeah, my number 10 is Outside the Law, directed by Todd Browning and starring Lon Chaney and, and Priscilla Dean. It was a crime drama. And it's apparently one of the considered to be the first psychologically driven films in the gangster genre. Like I like a bit of Todd Brown and I like a bit of Lon Chaney, and it uh, it sounds like it'd be a good one, without a doubt. Good choice. Mm-hmm. All right, my number ten is Treasure Island, also starring Lon Chaney, who was clearly very busy that year. Uh, mm-hmm. An adaptation of the Robert Louis Stevenson classic. It's a story that I love, and like you said, I like Lon Chaney, so sounds like a fun one to watch. Yep, I, I couldn't remember whether I'd seen that one or not. I think I might have seen bits. So. Right, right. It's, it's tricky when some of these films. Yes, it definitely is. Okay, my number nine film is a French silent crime thriller called 
Barabbas or Barabbas, uh, directed and written by Louis Fuilad. Well, sure. a guy called Louis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's about uh, a guy called Barabbas, who's the brutal leader of an underground gang who causes mayhem and destruction to the lives of civilized people. And if you don't want to see a film that's described like that, I mean, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. I just It sounds like that'll be a good one to watch. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. not on my list, but it does definitely sound intriguing. So what's your, what's your number nine? My number nine is The Devil's Pass Key, directed by Eric von Stroheim. And uh, basically, from what I can understand, it's a very early version of a film about sex and blackmail, which uh, you know I seem to be interested in seeing how that stuff was portrayed back in these early days because I just think that film back then was so different from how it is now. So yeah, I, I just find that an interesting subject. There you go. Very good. My number eight is... The Austrian version of The Prince and the Pauper, directed by Alexander Korda and starring Tibor Libinsky. Uh, it's based on Mark Twain's 1881 novel about, the pub, about a boy who switches places with Edward, Prince of Wales. Uh, it's been made a few times, so I just quite, quite like to see what they did with this uh, silent version. Yeah, I always like The Prince and the Pauper. I always find yeah. that to be a good story. So Yeah, it's a great, great cracking story, so this would be, be interesting to see how they did this one. Sure thing. But that was, that was my number eight. All right, very good. My number eight is... The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, starring ah. one Conrad Veidt. And um, this is one of those films, I don't know a lot about it. I know it's an early sort of kind of horror thriller film. It's very well regarded in, in cinephile circles, uh, critical circles. It's obviously a sort of a, one of those films that stood the test of time and is considered an important movie. I've never seen it, uh, so I would like to. Very good. Okay, so my number seven is uh, The Copperhead. It's based on a novel by Frederick Landis and a play by Augustus Thomas, and it stars Lionel Barrymore. And it's all about the beginning begins at the, the beginning of the American Civil War, and has a farmer who is asked by Abraham Lincoln to join the Copperheads, a clandestine, quasi-political organization, whose sentiments lie with the South. And his family and friends don't know of his mission and call him a traitor. Huh, that sounds intriguing. I don't I don't know that I came across that one in my research, but uh, it definitely sounds like one I'd like to see. Yeah, it's, I quite like the idea. That sounds like a good story. It sounds like one, actually, which would be good, good to have a remake. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, my number seven is The Flapper, starring Olive Thomas. And uh, this is kind of a romantic comedy, I believe, And it's, but it's the most important thing about it is it was sort of credited with launching the entire flapper movement in the U.S., which was, of course, where, you know, all these young girls uh, okay. in their 20s were getting out there and dancing and doing the, the, the flapper dance and everything. And it sort of kind of... This film basically influenced the American cultural lifestyle for a few years in the early 1920s, and I think any time you have something that has that much cultural impact, I'm curious to see what I'm curious to see why it had that impact. Oh, definitely. I hadn't realized it was like uh, I thought. I don't know. I never really thought where the whole flapper thing came from. So that, that'd be really interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it existed before this movie, but this sort of popularized it, and then it became the craze that sort of swept the nation. So, you know, I'm curious to see if it's uh, if it's uh, a little more, you know. Meaningful yeah. than something like, you know, Lombada, The Forbidden Dance, which yeah. Yeah, true. is throwing out the really obscure oh, B-movies now, huh? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't, think, I don't think Lombada, The Forbidden Dance, quite had the same cultural impact no, as The no. Flapper, so. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. All right. Okay. Uh, my number six is The Gollum, How He Came Into the World, or with its original German title, The Gollum, Wer in, in die Welt kam. Oh, sure. Apologies to all the German listeners. Yeah. But it's... Uh, Co-directed by and stars Paul Wegener, I think it's pronounced, and Wegener stars as the Gollum, and it's adapted from the 1915 novel The Gollum. I always quite liked the idea of the Gollum in stories and things like that. Sure. Uh, and it's just 
it's I think this is quite a a renowned one or one of the one of the early horror films which has had a bit of a legacy from it right yeah. and it's it's probably one of those I should watch and I'll probably see how it's influenced lots of other horror films going on from there sure all right well my number six is also a horror film of, of sorts it's the second Robert Louis Stevenson appearance on my list it is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde starring John Barrymore and I've always loved the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde I've always found it fascinating and um, so this you know again just one adaptation of it that I haven't seen yet so I'm mm-hmm. curious to check it out good pick uh, my number five is Nomads of the North uh, it stars Lon Chaney again and Lewis Stone and it's about a Canadian Mountie Let's an innocent fugitive escape with the woman he loves. Aww. And it's based on a novel by James Oliver Kerwood. Just sounds like a, an interesting story. Sure, sure. Well, my number five is a movie that's already appeared on your list, and it is Outside the Law, which, as you said, was directed by Todd Browning, starring Lon Chaney. Sounded mm-hmm. like an interesting story, and uh, I would like to check that out. Yeah, very good. Uh, my number four is Way Down East, which is directed by D.W. Griffith and starring Lillian Gish. Uh, well, it's D.W. Griffith film, so that's the main reason I'd like to see it. And it's also apparently been made uh, a few times with two earlier silent versions, and there's a sound version from 1935 starring Henry Fonda, which would also be interesting to see. All right, well, we're hitting it one early this week because my number four pick is also Way Down East. Very good. So there you go. And, um, and well, part of the reason I want to see it, all the, all the reasons you said, but also uh, it has a chase uh, um, across ice flows as, as its big climactic moment at the oh, end. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that is apparently quite well known in film circles, and I've never actually watched it. So I would like to see what that's like with my own eyes. So, Very good. All right, so we're on the same page for at least one this week. Yes, Let's we are. Let's see what happens with our top three. Go ahead, Phil. Okay, my number three, which is uh, the last one of the ones I want to see. Uh, I've not seen It's called The Girl in Number 29. Directed by John Ford and based on the novel The Girl in the Mirror. Sadly, it's presumed to be lost, but I really like the sound of it. It's about uh, a New York playwright, has one success and then refuses to work on another play. And then one night he sees a woman in an apartment across the street take out a gun and place it to her forehead. And he goes over there and saves her and then other things happen. And it just sounds like a really good little mystery kind of thing. It does. It also sounds like it'd be perfect for a remake. Oh, absolutely. It really does. In mm. fact, Phil, once yes. again, our number threes are also the same because my number three pick is The Girl in Number 29. Oh, brilliant. Uh, and yes, it, does, yes. it sounds fantastic. And actually, I'm going yeah. to go ahead and spoil it because it's a lost yeah. film. So he, he sees the suicide and then he gets involved in a bunch of stuff and he ends up killing somebody or so he thinks. And by the end, it's kind of got a twist like David Fincher's The Game where it turns out that this girl who's in love with him – faked all of this stuff to try and inspire him to write again. Yeah. So I feel like it's kind of a twist ending from 1920, which I think is really cool to see what what it was like. It does sound, like you said, like just a really fun, you know, exciting kind of thriller. Uh, Yeah. So I would love to check that out. You mentioned the game. I wonder if... David Fincher read about. I wonder if this inspired it in any way. Uh, you know, it's certainly possible. Yeah. You know, and the fact that John Ford directed it too. I mean, that's just really. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I wish it wasn't lost because I'm I'm betting it's probably a pretty incredible film. Yeah, it sounds like a cracking cracking film. Okay, so that's uh, that's. I'm now onto the two films that I've actually seen from that year. All right, take it away. And number two is one you've already mentioned, The Cabinet of Doctor Caligari. Ah, yes. Yes, uh, German expressionist horror film. It's to be honest, it's it's a tough watch. Uh-huh. in this day and age there's, there's bits of it which just work really well it, it all looks stunning and there's some bits where you go you you realize the scale of what they did with the sets back then it's incredible right uh but then some of it's a bit a bit of a you know you just you are going oh for god's sake but no <laughs> it is a it's a classic film classic horror film it is worth watching if you do love films uh and that's my number two 
All right. Well, my number two is a different film, and um, I I have a sneaking suspicion that it may still appear on your list, but uh, we'll find out. So my number two is The Mark of Zorro, which stars Douglas Fairbanks Sr., and it is one of the earlier Zorro adaptations. And the reason I want to see it is, A, because it was a big hit, and, and you know Douglas Fairbanks, of course, was a big star, but I also happen to be a gigantic Zorro fan. Uh, I always have been. I've loved the character for years and years, so any Zorro film that I haven't seen, and you know, I thought maybe I had seen this one, but as I did my research, I couldn't I couldn't seem to recall ever actually having watched it. So yeah. uh, it's on my list at a very high position because I really do want to see it, but I can't say that I have as of yet. So that's my number well, two. <laughs> how my do, number how one is The Mark of Zorro. Uh, I had a feeling. For the same reason, it's Douglas Fairbanks, and it's a Zorro film. Uh, it's one of the films, you know, Batman, you know, Bruce Wayne was watching. Yep. On the night his parents were killed. Uh, no, it's just, it's it's a Zorro film. It's, it's all action-packed. You know what you're getting with Zorro? Uh, and it's it's another good one. Yeah, definitely. So it is worth tracking down if you haven't seen it. So what about your number one? All right, so my number one is probably not one of the most famous movies on this list, but it is a movie that I love. And I don't even know if it qualifies as a movie. I believe technically it's a short film, um, although it's it's fairly lengthy. I think it's at least a half an hour. But it is an Eastern Westerner starring one Harold Lloyd. And oh, good. the reason that I love this film so much is not only is it brilliant comedy because Harold Lloyd is just a, you know was a terrific comedian. We've talked about him in previous episodes. Um, he was a huge star in the silent era. But this is the film that introduced me to Harold Lloyd. Previous to seeing this, I had never seen any of his movies, and I wasn't even particularly familiar with him. I basically knew Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, and that was about the extent of it yeah. for my silent film knowledge. And then I took um, I took some film classes in college, and this was one of the movies that we watched as part of a, a kind of a unit that we did on silent films. And I absolutely fell in love with it, and I became you know instantly enamored with Harold Lloyd, and I've since seen many of his films. So this is the one that really got me into him. And so for that reason, I, I do think it's really fantastic if you have a chance to watch it. The, the physical comedy in it is just amazing. Yeah, I, th- I, I do think he's one of the – I think he's one of the, the greatest silent movie stars. Oh, without a doubt. So that's – yeah, so that's the one that, that like I said, introduced me to him, and I, I do have a very a very soft spot for it. So there you go. That's our films of 1920. 1920. All righty. So how about the box office top 10 for the year, Phil? How did we do? Okay. Well, number 10 was a film called Excuse My Dust. Number nine was Double Speed. Number eight was The Roundup. Number seven, here we go, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which Uh, is on the list. Very good, yep. Number six was The Mark of Zorro. Oh, good. Uh, Number five was Pollyanna. Mm-hmm. Number four was Shipwrecked Among Cannibals, which was a a silent film travel documentary. Oh. Directed by William F. Alder. I, d- I didn't see this one when I was doing my research. Yeah, right. It features episodes from Siam, Java, New Guinea, plus an apparently fictitious encounter with cannibals on a small island in the South Pacific. Hmm. Fair enough. Okay, well, that was number four. Number three is called Something to Think About. Number two was Over the Hill to the Poorhouse. And number one was Way Down East, which oh, I think... there you go. It was yeah, on both go. our lists. Yeah, yeah, both our lists, yeah. Uh, Over the Hill to the Poorhouse sounds like an absolutely dreadful movie. I'm just going to say that. Yeah. that made <laughs> sounds very mil- depressing. That made $3 million. Wow. And that's, Way Down East made $5 million. That's big money for those days. Oh, hold on. Over the Hill to the Poorhouse uh, is about a woman who has a lot of children and who never gets the chance to enjoy life. <laughs> so, yeah, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds like fun. Sounds way too much like real life. I'm sorry. <laughs> Good God, yeah. Yeah, that sounds more well, like a documentary than a, yeah, than a fiction go, yeah. film. 
that's uh, that's nineteen twenty. All right. Okay, so those are our top 10 films of 1920. If you have seen any films from 1920 or you have different thoughts on your top 10, please feel free to share them with us. Now seems like a good time to tell people how they can get a hold of us. Phil, why don't you go ahead and share those details? Yeah, you can find us on Twitter at after underscore the ending. And we're over on facebook.com backslash after the ending podcast. Uh, you can also listen to us on various podcast platforms, uh, Obviously on iTunes, we're also on soundcloud.com, uh, backslash after the ending podcast, and we're also on Stitcher. And you can email us directly at after the ending at verizon.net. And don't forget, if you want to help us out, one of the best things you can do is to hop over to iTunes, just take 30 seconds of your time, and leave us a positive review. We would greatly appreciate it. Yes, that would be most, most wonderful of you. So next week, we have some special stuff in store, and we're not going to tell you what it is just yet. So we're going to keep our movies a secret and our, our mini feature a secret and our year a secret. And I will say we may have a special guest co-host for the evening. Uh, and we, yeah. may, we may not. But <laughs> how'd so, you like them apples? Yeah. That isn't a clue. I just felt like saying, <laughs> how'd you like them apples? Oh, uh, now you gave away that Matt Damon's going to be on this show. Oh, <laughs> we're going to have to cancel it now. I'm really uh, surprised. Seriously. Just to be clear, Matt Damon is not going to be on our show. Uh, so anyway, but yeah, so we have some fun stuff planned for next week. We're going to keep you in suspense a little bit. Hopefully everything will work out timing wise uh, and we will uh, have some good stuff. You may see some hints uh, on social media uh, before the episode airs. So so take a look at our Facebook and Twitter pages if you want to get some clues as to what's going on. But for now, I think we will leave you in suspense. Yes. So, Phil, why don't you tell people where they can find you online? I will, can mostly be found at liveforfilms.com for all your movie news, reviews, interviews, trailers, posters, artwork, and the like, uh, and all the associated social media. Very good. And where can they find you, Mike? Well, you can swing over to my website, wordsoutloud.com, where you can download some free stuff. And you can also swing by amazon.com to get my books. My first book, Bloodsucker Blues, is always free on Amazon. And my second book, Blood Brothers, Bloodsucker Blues Part 2, just dropped on Amazon. And you can pick that up. And uh, it's, a, it's a fun read, I hope. So swing by and check those out. And you can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash official. Okay, so that is going to wrap us up for this episode of After the Ending. As always, we greatly appreciate you taking the time to listen to us. Yes, thank you very much for your patience, and we hope we have amused you and intrigued you. Yes, yes, I hope that we have accomplished those two things. And if nothing else, I hope we've at least killed an hour of your time in a relatively entertaining way. Yes, yes. So until next time, I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the Ending. Okay. <laughs> What's that? Are you taking it in a musical direction? All right. Wow. <laughs> Sorry about that. <clears throat> that's, that's okay. <laughs> I just wasn't expecting that. Uh, you, did you have a little hot fuzz caught in your throat there? Mm. Was that... <laughs> Sorry. Did I catch you while you're drinking? Yeah, you did. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, it's a, it was a that's... comedy moment. <sighs> no, I had a big, big mouthful of water. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. Oh, it's on my beard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, okay, I'll take I'll take that again. <laughs> All right. Well, are you? Is this your moment to? Uh, is this your turn to start cracking up like I was a couple weeks ago? Yeah. <sighs> You're back in the room. <laughs> okay. Oh, uh, sorry. That's okay. okay. You're cracking Someone yourself up tonight, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat>
I just looked down and saw there was water all over my top. <laughs> oh, just before, have we done one a mini feature where we talk about films that everybody loves but we don't like? No, but that's a perfect. That's a great yeah. one to do because there's a million of them that I've got. So yeah, that's. Oh, I know there's loads that you've got. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Mister. I don't like Blade Runner. Oh. Well, oh. yeah, right there. Yeah. Oh. Earthquake. I'm to... No, I'm just trying to get the list thing stuck to the wall. I'll write that down before. Are you hammering it to the wall with your microphone? <laughs>